What is your place in the church? I'm not talking about where you're sitting right now in the church building. I know some of you probably have assigned seats, and you come into the exact same one every week. That's a terrible idea because the pastor always knows when you're not here. If you move around a little bit, then you can say, well, I was over in a different section today. What is your place in the church? Every single believer has one. Now, not everyone who sits in a church building actually is a part of the church. The church is a defined group, and it consists of those people who have repented of their sins and surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ, placing their faith in his death on the cross as the payment for their sins and the power of the resurrection to live as transformed creatures. And each individual who hears the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to him or her must make a response to that calling. And then at that moment, instantaneously, not after a membership class, not after baptism, instantaneously, a person becomes part of the body of Christ. And he or she then has a place in the church. I would like for us to look together today to see what our places in the church are. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 6. Paul wrote 13 different letters in the New Testament. This is one of them. And typically, Paul's organization of these letters was to begin with some theology and doctrinal statements. Sometimes the theology and doctrinal statements would come as a result of questions that people had sent to Paul and he answered them. Sometimes they didn't, but in this case, there was some theological controversy going on in the church of the Galatians. Paul heard about it. He wrote this letter to refute some false teachings that these people had fallen prey to. And then Paul, as he did in nearly every letter, turned the corner and made some practical observations, some applications to the theology that he had just taught. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul looked at this idea of the church and our place in it. Would you read with me, please, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's, one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will, carry his own, will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. In these ten verses that we just read together, 
Paul talked about four different places, four different roles that members of the body of Christ talk about. And over the next hour and a half or so, I would like to talk about those four roles. First, the church is to lift up each other. Do you see what Paul said there in verse 1? Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Paul said, now look, we all have received Jesus Christ as Savior. Every member of the church has been forgiven of his or her sins, but we continue to commit those sins, right? Even though we became Christians back here, God is still working on us. He's still shaping us and refining us. And there are times that we veer off of the narrow pathway and we fall into the temptations and snares of sin. Paul says when that happens to one of us, the responsibility of the rest of us is to rally around that person and to try to help that person get back on the right path. The word restore here is an excellent Bible word there in verse 1. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. That Greek word restore is the same word that would be used when a person had broken a bone and it needed to be put back in place and set so that it could heal properly. How many of you have ever broken a bone? All right, several. Many of you have. This is a violent church. (laughs) And so many of you have broken bones. I also have. The last bone that I broke was this left thumb. In Columbus, Mississippi, the town where I live, we, we formerly had church league softball. And all of the churches would form their teams, and we would play softball together. And one evening, our church team was playing, and I dove awkwardly for a ground ball and landed in a funny position and broke this left thumb. But I didn't know it. I thought that I had just jammed it. It did hurt badly, but when I went into the dugout, I I put some ice on it. I could tell, however, that my thumb was beginning to swell And I was having difficulty moving it. When I went out into the field, every ground ball that would hit my glove would send shooting pain up my left arm. And by the end of the evening, my thumb had swollen so badly that I I couldn't even hold the bat, couldn't even grip the bat with my left hand. I basically was just swinging one-handed. So that night, I hit three home runs instead of my normal four. (laughs) So... The next e- that evening, I put ice on my thumb all e- night, and at that time I was on staff as a church staff at a church as a student minister. That the next day was a Wednesday, and so I kept ice on my thumb all day long. That evening we were gathering all of our students, and I had gone to the building a little bit early to make sure all of the chairs were straight. And the first person to enter the room was sweet little Christy Euler. Christy was a 7th grader, weighed about 70 pounds. She came in and saw that I had ice on my thumb. She said, Gary, what did you do to your thumb? I said, I jammed it last night in the softball game. She said, let me see. And so when I pulled the ice off, Christy went, Oh, Gary, your thumb is broken. 
I said, I don't think it's broken. See, I can still move it. And I had always heard if you could move it, it wasn't broken. I said, see, I can still move it. She's, she said, I promise you that's broken. I said, Christy, why do you think it's broken? And she uh, went, did that hurt? <laughs> so if it wasn't broken before, it was broken afterwards. And so the next morning, I went over to Dr. Freelou's office, got him to x-ray it. Dr. Freelou said, yes, it, it's actually broken in two different places. We're going to have to put a cast on there. And when Dr. Freelou came in with the materials for the cast, looking at the x-ray, he positioned my thumb exactly where it needed to be. He took those strips and wrapped them around and put the cast on. And he gently put that bone back into place. And it healed. Look at that rascal. <laughs> I can use it flexible, no problems. Sometimes when one of us falls into sin, the church, the rest of us, make a mistake. Some people make the mistake of saying, oh, we don't want to condemn her. Let's just be loving. Let, let's, just, let's just love them back into it. Let's, let's not offend them. And then other people make the mistake of saying, they need to know that they've done wrong. And they hammer that person and, and rebuke the person with such severity that they say, well, there's no hope in even getting back. Either extreme is a mistake. Paul said, you can't ignore the broken bone. You can't just hope it's going to heal on its own. You can't just say, well, maybe, maybe circumstances will fall in a way that, that they will somehow. No, Paul said, the rest of us restore the person, but we do it gently. We don't bring in a sledgehammer and say, we're going to crush you into obedience. We restore, but we do so gently. The church lifts up each other. The next idea that Paul said is that the church leans on each other. Look with me in verse 2. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. One of God's greatest blessings to us when we receive Christ as Savior is that we are not walking with Him alone. We have brothers and sisters. We have people that can support us when we are carrying extra loads. We have people who can encourage us when we are discouraged. They can comfort us when we are grieving. They can wrap their arms around us. We're part of a spiritual family. And Paul says when one of us is carrying a heavy burden, the rest of us look for ways to say, is there something that I can do to help you? I, I can't do really anything about this scenario. It appears that you have to go through it, but you don't have to go through it alone. We are here. Let us get up under that burden with you. What you're carrying now is too much for you, and there's no reason for you to carry it alone. Let us minister to you. You've ministered to me, and so let us help you. 
we carry each other's burdens. It's part of every believer's place in the body of Christ. That we look around, we're sensitive to, we are in tune with what is going on in others' lives. We're not just a group of people who share a building together for an hour on Sundays or Wednesdays or see a life group. We are people who are aware of each other's life circumstances enough to know they've got a burden. They've got a family member who's sick. We need to rally around. They've got some financial difficulties. We need to support. I don't know that this event that I'm about to tell you is the first time that I saw the church in action this way, but it's the first time that I have a vivid memory of it. My 11th grade year at West Point High School in Mississippi, I was sitting at lunch with some friends, and over the intercom came the principal's voice, Gary Permenter, report to the office. Gary Permenter, report to the office. Everybody who was seated around me, mainly women, they wouldn't leave me alone. And so I was, I was sitting there at the table. They all went, ooh. Now, I had not done anything wrong. I said, I am not in trouble. They said, that's why, that's why you're going to the office. You're in trouble. So I went, walked down the hallway to the office, and my mom was in the office. Her clothes were filthy. I said, Mom, what happened? She said, your dad, your dad's restaurant has burned. My dad owned his own restaurant. And when he made a run to the bank and the grocery store to pick up some ground beef for the hamburgers that day, a fire started in the kitchen. Someone trying to help went out the back door to try to get something to put it out. And then the wind just caught that fire and did devastating damage. And so my mom said, look, we're not going to tell your little brother. Alan was in the eighth grade at that time. And so my mom said, just pick him up after school. And when we have an update, when you get home, we will, we'll let you know. Teenagers aren't always aware of their family circumstances. But I did know that my dad earned more money than my mom did. And I was a junior in high school getting ready to go to college. And I just began processing because I had heard my mom and dad several times discuss that my dad needed to get more insurance. He was way, way underinsured, just trying to cut costs and, and pay employees. I knew that he was underinsured. So I began thinking as I walked in a daze back down to where we were eating lunch, how are we going to make it? What are we, what are we going to do? So after school, I drove over to 5th Street Junior High School. I picked up my brother. And as we turned off of Miller Avenue onto Hibbler Street, a white van was sitting in our driveway, sort of like a FedEx van, but it had no markings on it. And so I pulled into the carport there and looked, and in the driver's seat of the van was Timmy Terman, Timmy was the delivery guy for the little grocery store around the corner. And I pulled in. I said, hey, Timmy, what's going on? He said, I've got some groceries for you. And I said, are you sure? My mom never had groceries delivered. She just, you know, went to the grocery store and picked them up. 
And I said, my, are you sure? You know, my, my mom doesn't do that. He said, your mom didn't do this. He said, people all over this town heard about your dad's restaurant. And every time we hang up the phone, we pick it right back up because people have been calling all day to send groceries to your house. And so we opened the back of the van and started to unload it. Timmy and my brother Alan got the light stuff. I got the heavy stuff. We carried it in and stacked it all on the floor and began putting it away. And I said, Timmy, thank you. Thank the Baldwins. They own the little grocery store. He said, oh, I'll be back. I've got at least two more loads to bring. It was amazing. Because people in our little small town of West Point knew that there had been times in their lives when they had leaned on my mom and dad. And my parents had helped them carry their burden. And now that we had a burden... They said, you won't carry it by yourself. We're helping you. That's the church at work. Paul said, we lean on each other. We carry one another's burdens. Perhaps you noticed, as I did, that Paul appeared to contradict himself. There in verse 2, he said, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. But then drop down into verse 5. For each person will have to carry his own load. Well, now, wait a minute, Paul. Are we to carry each other's burdens? Or is each person to carry his or her own load? Which is it? You, you're saying one thing in one, one verse, another thing in another verse. Well, just as is in English... The words that Paul used in Greek were different words. Burden and load aren't the same. The word for burden is something really large, like a big boulder, something that would be impossible for one person to carry by himself or herself. Say, I, I, I want to try to carry it, but I, I just I can't do it. It's too big for me. But the word load down in verse 5 is a word similar to a backpack. So the teaching that Paul is giving here is that, yes, we are to lean on each other. When, when we are caring, when a family is saying, hey, we've got this big burden, the rest of us jump in, but none of us is to presume upon the kindness of the church and manipulate and take advantage of the church and say, you know what, I don't even want to carry my own backpack. I don't want to carry anything. You, you just do it all for me. So we're to lift up each other. We're to lean on each other. Then Paul says we're to learn from each other. Now I'm going to move through this part a little bit more quickly so that I can finish up with the last idea. But if you see there in verse 3, Paul wrote, For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul says, look, none of us has arrived. I don't know in this room which person has been following Jesus Christ the longest and who knows him best, but whoever that person is has more growing to do. And that person's growing is a product of the rest of us saying, hey, let us help you along the way. Let, let us be a part of your spiritual journey. Paul said no one in the church ever should think, oh, I am really something. I don't need anybody else. He said, no, you always do. And then down in verse 4, 
Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. Isn't that comparison a danger? Don't we sometimes have the tendency to look around and say, well, I'm more spiritual than he is, and she's not very consistent. I think I'm more mature in my faith. Paul says we simply need to worry about our own progress in following Jesus Christ and not allow our devotion to become a source of pride. Well, then down in verse 6, drop, drop below that verse 5, let the one who has taught the Word share all his good things with his teacher. Here's part of that teaching. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit, spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Paul says, look, here is a spiritual principle. If you surrender to God's work, if you labor in His field, labor in His harvest, then you reap. But if you choose to squander your life by pursuing things that do not matter, the crops that come up will not be pleasing. And part of what we do in the church is to keep reinforcing that principle to each other. To keep saying, let's sow to the Spirit. Let's focus our lives on kingdom values. Let's not become consumed and preoccupied with something that one split second after our deaths will not matter. And each of us needs that reminder. None of us can say... I really don't need the church. I'm mature in my faith. I'm, I'm stronger than any other person here. Nobody really can teach me anything. Paul said, oh, that's a terrible mistake. We learn from each other. And then finally, Paul says, we love on each other. In verses 9 and 10, Paul said, let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, your translation may, something, may say something like, every time we have an opportunity, every chance we get, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. The metaphor most commonly used for the church in the New Testament, this ecclesia, is brothers and sisters. It's used in nearly every letter in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. I recognize that some people's families are tense and have conflict, and maybe along the way there was some estrangement and there you know, may be some distance and things that you have to work through, but that's not God's design. God's design for the family is to be an interconnected people who passionately love each other who look for opportunities to minister, to encourage, to affirm, to say we care about you, and we care about you not only with our words, but with our actions. And every time we have an opportunity to pat you on the back, to support you, to say way to go, to say, hey, I'm behind you, I'm praying for you, every time we have that opportunity, we don't let it slip by us. 
what Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified was the way that other people will know that you belong to me is by how deeply you love each other. Jesus did not give one other qualification. Do you know that? He never said, everyone will know that you belong to me if you go on mission trips. He never said, people will know that you are one of mine if you read the Bible every day, if you pray, if you attend church every Sunday. All of those activities are extremely important. But they aren't the one that Jesus said is the defining mark of people who have been transformed by him. The one statement that Jesus made as the transforming mark is you love each other the way I love you. That's a big calling. That we say the way that Jesus has poured his extravagant grace into my life is what I choose to do for others. I grew up in a very small church. And even though the, the men and women in our church, our pastor, were, were phenomenal, just a great church environment, we never had any sort of specialized youth activities. <coughs> Excuse me. The largest that our youth group ever was was seven people. And so we never had a paid student minister or anything like that. We, on Wednesday nights, I went into prayer meeting you know, with the adults. That's just the way that we were. And so I did not have any age-appropriate teaching until I got to college at Mississippi State. Mississippi State's Baptist campus ministry is one of the largest in the nation, and it is so for a reason. Tremendous leadership, particularly then. And that four years was pivotal for my growing in Christ because all of a sudden I realized God wants a daily relationship with me and, and doesn't just meet me in the church building on Sundays. I, I cannot describe to you how profound the impact of the Baptist campus ministry at Mississippi State was for me. Every semester, we would go on a retreat together, off on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. My first semester... We went on a retreat. God really worked in a powerful way. And then on Sunday morning, what our students, as a matter of fact, are going to do in about 35 minutes in the student building, our, our director gave opportunities for anyone to share. Hey, has God said something to you? Is there a prayer need that you want us to know about? Look, this is just a time for you to come and say what's going on. And a boy made his way to the front. I knew him. He also was a freshman first semester. His name was Keith. Keith walked behind the microphone, which was sitting on a stand. And he hardly even made eye contact with people. He looked down most of the time. <coughs> well, <coughs> I, uh, <coughs> I, uh, <coughs> I guess you've noticed that... Uh, I've spent a lot of time by myself this weekend, and it was, he had. He had spent a lot of time by himself that weekend. You know, he said, I, uh, I ate most of my meals, you know, got them and went outside and walked around the lake alone, and then he would just kind of make a brief eye contact and put his head back down. He would say, I guess it's just because I'm a loner. I have a terrible self-image. I just prefer to be myself rather than be rejected. 
And so I, I just spend time by myself. And then he said, but I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be a loner. I, I, you know, maybe if someone, I don't know, maybe if someone just really, really showed me that they loved me. Maybe if someone just, just said, I love you, maybe then I wouldn't be this way. And as he was sharing, I looked around the room, and there were girls with tears coming out of their eyes. And the moment that Keith put the microphone, you know, kind of back, he had taken it off, they raced to the front. They surrounded Keith. Keith, we love you. We love you. I was in the back saying, girls, I'm a loner too. (laughs) He's not the only one. I also, girls, I'm needy. I have a terrible self-image. Do you know that Keith and I were in school seven more semesters and every one of those retreats on Sunday morning, Keith would get behind the mic. I guess you've noticed I've spent a lot of time by myself this weekend. (laughs) And it worked every time. Every time people say, we love you so much. Now, I disagree with Keith's methods, but I completely affirm what he knew to be true. That group of people would love you. That group of people would say, we will surround you, and you don't have to be perfect for us to do it. We will love on you. Every opportunity we have, we will find a way to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to you. I experienced it myself. I know it to be true. Is that what people think of Harmony Hill when the church comes to mind? Do people in Lufkin say, look, I don't know a lot about that church. I know where they're located. But I do know this, those people will love you. They are an unstoppable force of the never-failing love of Jesus Christ. And every opportunity they have to express that love, they take it. And you don't have to be perfect for them to give it to you. What is your place in the church? I'm not talking about the place where where you are sitting in the building today. I'm asking, what is your place in the functioning of the body of Jesus Christ? Here are four great places to start. For each one of us to say, God, this isn't a job for someone else. I'm not looking around the room to see who might be more qualified. God, you use me in these ways. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray and dismiss us. But there may be some people who have heard God speak to you this morning. And you are asking yourself... What am I to do about this message? 
I'd like to suggest two possible ways that you might want to respond. Remember, way back at the beginning when I started, I said that not everyone who sits in a church building is a member of a church. A church, an ecclesia, is only people who have surrendered to Jesus Christ, who have, a, who have had a personal one-on-one encounter with Him. And maybe you have questions about how to begin a relationship with Jesus. After we dismiss in prayer... I invite you to slip right across the hallway. There's a next steps station. And people will be there to help you process and think through, how do I resolve my own relationship with Jesus Christ and get it, get it started? I don't have doubt that there are people in the room and your primary place in our church is sitting in the chair where you are. You're a very good receiver of the ministry of the church. And perhaps God has nudged you today to say you you were not created to be just a receiver. You were created also to serve. But maybe you don't know how to do that. Maybe you don't know where to plug in or, or how to get started. I invite you also to slip right across the hallway. People will be able to talk with you about volunteer opportunities, ways that you can discover how God has gifted you and and ways that he would like to use you here in our church family. And so would you please do that? Let's bow. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. And then there will be a short announcement video, but I know you've been sitting a while, and so I will pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. God, thank you for this time we have had together today. I pray that you will help each of us, God, to embrace our calling to fill our places in the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.